Hi, I'm Tom Sherrington. And I'm Emma Turner. Welcome to our new show, Mind the Gap, Making Education Work Across the Globe, where we talk about closing gaps in global education through proven strategies and research-based practices. You'll hear our individual unique perspectives, as well as interviews with some of the most compelling authors and thinkers in the pre-K to 12 ecosystem. And now, enjoy today's show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Emma Turner, and Tom Sherrington, where tonight we're in conversation with Sam Strickland. Welcome, Sam. Thank you ever so much for having me. and Good evening to you. Hi, Sam. Yeah, we're really delighted to have you on, on our programme today. And we want to talk to you all about school leadership. And you're, you're someone for, who, for me, it represents kind of, I don't know, sort of no nonsense, down to earth, get on with it and doing a really great job. And I have to say, on, on my travels going to visit schools, it was a real joy coming to your school and, and talking to your teachers and seeing you in action. Um, What's the secret? <laughs> but what what is it? I mean, you have this sort of you have this sort of image, and you might not be aware of it. But you have this mm. sort of image um, out in the Twitter sphere, in it, of someone who does have this sort of down to earth, no nonsense feel about you, um, sort of cutting through the noise. Um, but you do also get quite polemical about certain things, um, mm. which we might get into. But what what again? What what, what is is that a deliberate thing? Do you feel a sort of no-nonsense kind of common sense kind of thing is something you're deliberately trying to project because you think that's the right thing to do? Well, okay. So, I mean, firstly, thank you as well. And thank you for, for when you visited my school. It was a real privilege to have you address my staff. Um, in terms of the no-nonsense element, I don't think it's a deliberate thing on my part. It's just really it's who I am and how I've, I guess, crafted myself over kind of several decades of working in this in this game. Um, I do feel that we we complicate things within the profession a lot, and that's not to say that we shouldn't have um, you know time to think about things, think about things in depth and detail, engage in lots of research, look at what other schools are doing. But ultimately, in terms of the the execution of what we're trying to do in our schools. Uh, it sounds really crude, but I always talk to my senior leadership team about the lowest common denominator. I'm not going to say who that is because that's 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 really inappropriate. But what what is the, what's the level of pitch for the lowest com- common denominator within our school setting, and will they get it? And if our approach to behaviour, curriculum, teaching, retrieval practice, you know, you name it, whatever it is, if that person doesn't get it, well, we're never going to bring them on board with us. And it's that classic kind of the teacher trying to re-explain why Hitler came to power 500 times in the same way and not really getting why the really lofty, verbose language that they're using just isn't falling on the pupil in front of them. So it's not uh, a deliberate thing to craft out... um, you know, a particular image or identity. I just don't believe in wasting time. And I think I look at you know the profession as a whole. We work at a million miles an hour. We've got a finite amount of time in school. We've got a finite amount of time with the children that that you know graces with their presence, quite frankly. And I just feel it's criminal to waste time on things that detract from the main job. And it's also criminal to staff because I think I also you know I really strongly believe this. There's a, a real sense of moral duty to do the right thing by the staff and to make their working lives as easy as you can in what is actually a really difficult profession. Well, I think that comes through. I mean, see, that's why I love listening to what you're going to say. I mean, I feel like if, if there's a complicated issue, um, 
you're going to have a kind of a super grounded version of it, which is, but it's always principled. I mean, it's just un, inescapably principled. And, uh, you know, in the books that you've written, that, that, that comes through. So it's not like you've sort of sacrificed principle to be sort of pragmatic, but there is a blend of that, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is that interplay of my own principles, my own experiences, obviously what my, my senior team, my middle leadership, um, team and 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 all the and, and everybody else that works within the school that brings to the table, coupled with the context itself, and then research. And I've I've not been shy in opening up the doors of the school and inviting people in to see what we do. And equally, we've not been shy to go out on the road and look at what other schools do. And I think that's a really healthy thing to be doing, um, as as a you know, as a profession as a whole, really. Um, but yeah, no. In answer to your question, sorry, Tom. Absolutely, I, I think there's a fine balance between the two. But Emma, what's your take? I mean, you, you've you've known Sam for a long time, haven't you? <laughs> I'm not actually. <laughs> it was, Relatively well, new. I've, 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 I've filled in the gaps there. <laughs> <laughs> Created a backstory that doesn't exist, Mr. Yeah. Jones. <laughs> it always seems like it to me. Why, why do you talk about him all the time then? Because I think actually we're very much aligned in what in the way that we have. Uh, well, Sam's led, you know, leading schools, and I've led schools before. I think there's a lot of a lot of common ground. And the question I was going to ask you, Sam, was that a lot of people know you for working at Dustin at the moment, but you've led in many, many schools, haven't you? In in multiple schools. And the question I wanted to ask were, what were those kind of common threads of of leadership, especially effective leadership, across all of your leadership experiences? Because it's easy to kind of reflect on what's happened in one place at one time. Mm. But actually to pull out those common threads is more difficult. You've kind of lived it. So what are those kind of golden threads across leadership? Yeah, and I've I've worked as a a senior leader and indeed a a head in a real mix of schools as well, an all-girls school, state school, um, and a free school, uh, a flagship academy within a a trust, which was in the top 5% of all schools in the country, and obviously at Dustin as well. Um, And the common threads, again, I think that no-nonsense thread is one that does run run through, and certainly it's something I... I don't want to sort of say this arrogantly. I think it served me well in all of the leadership positions that I've held, um, whether it's at the you know salubrious all-girls school as a head of sixth form assistant head and working in a consortium, or whether it's been um, as a vice principal in charge of student care and safeguarding. Um, so certainly that simplicity or what appears to be simplistic is certainly one big thread that I think has served me well. Um, a second kind of thread, I would argue, that, that serves you well in it, whatever context that you work in is actually listening to people. And I mean, actually genuinely listening to people. Not, you know, it's not just kind of a cheap two second, you know, give me your ear. It's an actual proper taking on board what people have to say, but then actually actioning some of the things that are said to you. Um, But equally, and it's something I do in my current setting is is one-to-ones with staff at key points within the academic year. But you've also got to be realistic with staff that certain things aren't possible, but it's explaining why as well. So it's making certain things palatable that may not be the most palatable of um, of decisions that you might might have to kind of convey to, to, to members of staff. But I think the other common thread is also just getting rid of all the, the gumph, the nonsense that we're expected to do, because there is so much red tape in this profession. Much of it actually is generated by ourselves, thinking that it will please Ofsteads. And that line, we're doing this for Ofsted, and I've heard it multiple times in the different settings that I've worked in. And you, you're straight away going to, 
in, all, in many regards, almost set yourself on fire in terms of what you're trying to do and trying to achieve with your staff. If that is your opening line, it needs to come back to ultimately, and I talk about this in my books, the moral purpose behind what you're doing. What's, what, what is, why did we become a teacher at the, at the end of the day? Uh, and what was the purpose behind that? I think if you lose sight of that, especially as a leader, which is really easy to do when you're not teaching quite as much or at all, um, I think, again, you're potentially going to go down the wrong pathway and the wrong road with your staffing body. And I love the bit in your writing where you talk about creating the conditions where teachers can teach. And I've asked you this before, mm. but the people listening to this won't, won't have heard it, about what are people doing if they're not allowing teachers to teach? You know, what's going on? What is all that red tape that we can cut out? Yeah, I mean, there's so many distractions, isn't there, to, to actually you interacting with the pupils in your lesson for the 45 to one, you know, 90 minutes or whatever length of lesson you, you have. Um, I mean, some of those things are... Um, where schools are expecting you to perform in a set way. Uh, and some of that might be quite ill thought out. So lesson objectives is one that I do have a real big bee in my bonnet about. Um, and I can think countless times to, to lesson observations of staff where staff have got you know three different lesson, obje- um, lesson objectives, all colour coded and pupils are copying them out. And that's 15 or 20 minutes of dead learning time gone. And then you go and speak to you know student X, what, you, what are you doing today? And they'll say to you, well, I'm doing metacognition. And you say, well, what does that mean? And they go, well, we're doing metacognition, sir. Uh, as if, you know, that, that's going to answer the question. And you, you sort of think to yourself, but what is it you're actually learning? What is it your teacher actually wants you to walk away at the end of the lesson with? What is it about metacognition that you actually want your pupils to, to know, to understand? Um, again, I think another element is, is this sense that active learning or active engagement rather sorry necessarily breeds learning that's not to say that lessons shouldn't be active I don't want that to be confused I don't want this to come across as though I'm sort some sort of dry chalk and talk style tyrant uh, you know within the profession I don't believe in that I do believe in the power of teacher voice and championing the teacher as the expert because they should be and certainly in terms again of my moral duty as a leader with all leaders is to train your staff to and give them the freedom the space to be experts but i do think that we we've 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 been led down a a pathway as a profession certainly i look back to about 2005 when this really started to come in with afl and inside the black box almost being misinterpreted and bloom's taxonomy being thrown at us that staff were spending more time piecing together lesson activities than they were thinking about their subject knowledge their questioning what it is they actually want the pupils to walk away from the lesson with all in the name of pace 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 and really lazy feedback being given to teachers in terms of lesson observations you need to differentiate more you need to um, speak less you need to go at a faster pace what do those things actually tangibly mean and if you can define what those things mean what are they actually going to do for learning for kids because I don't think we've ever really thought that way when we've given that feedback and I'm just as guilty of that in the past I, I you know, absolutely would have given pants feedback like that myself so I'm not sort of sitting here on a pedestal saying look at me you know we're all guilty of it of course we are because we've all had to live we've it. actually told a teacher there wasn't enough differentiation in their lesson <laughs> <laughs> but that's part you know again if you <laughs> if you think though about kind of 
again, where, where schools are, uh, are trying to drive their teaching and yeah. learning approaches and what's being expected. And if you've got that crib sheet that you're expected to fit in as a, an observer within a lesson, you'll be looking for certain things that even if you think are incorrect, and you, but you've got to outwardly as a senior team not present a you know even a fag papers worth of difference internally in your own mind might be thinking this isn't right this isn't really going to lead to that teacher moving forwards as a professional emails is another you know another factor if you know your email inbox is just doing this throughout your lesson that's a distraction Uh, and the other one which i talk about a lot of course is behavior you're listening to mind the gap presented by john cat educational Over the past six decades, John Catt has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncattbookshop.com in the United States or johncattbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. Okay, so Sam, one of the things I I always think about you is that you really uh, talk about a lot of different issues, behaviour, curriculum, teaching and learning, and I'm fascinated by this need and kind of will to be close to the action. And you talk about this sort of 80% thing in your book where you sort of feel like you need to be out there present and visible and not getting stuck in your, in your office, but curriculum, for example, how close do you feel you are to your curriculum? I often ask head teachers hard questions about whether they know what books the kids are reading and that kind of thing. And how, how involved are you in your, in the curriculum in your school? Do you feel? Yeah. If I take it back to, the infancy of, of when I started at my school, um, the, the, the curriculum was a very heavily biased skills curriculum with PLCs at Key Stage 3. Um, and you know, digesting those, trying to get my head around what the school was trying to achieve, they were um, almost, I guess in many regards, completely alien to me, if I'm really, really honest, and didn't really tell me anything about what children were or were not learning within my school. Um, and I remember meeting very, uh, you know, deliberately with every single middle leader, having spent in the first seven weeks a day in every faculty area to get a, a feel. You can only get a feel, of course, in a day of what they're doing and why. But then I met with every middle leader to talk about what is it you're trying to achieve with the kids? What do these PLCs actually tell you? And very quickly, what became really apparent and obvious was these these PLCs weren't really fit for purpose and I spent was that that personal learning checklist is that what they are yeah and um yeah they're all linked to AOs and linked to GCSE grading criteria so it's that kind of spiral down curriculum approach and and again for me it's something that I'm going to be really honest, wanted to make me vomit. Um, I was trained by Christine Council. My my view is the curriculum should be a progression model. And it's something that, you know, in terms of approach, I've lived and breathed throughout my whole career. It's not just something I've suddenly jumped on the bandwagon in the last 18 months over, having been trained by her, you know, several decades ago. Um, but in terms of that closeness to the curriculum, I'm always walking the building as my as my senior team. And that's not to be, you know, this uh, benevolent presence across the school. It's actually to see what's going on. Um, it's to, to check with staff that everything's OK. But it also allows you, as you walk around the building, to have a feel for what is going on from one lesson to the next. Is there the level of consistency in terms of practice that we would expect on one front? Um, is the curriculum being delivered appropriately? Is behaviour undermining the curriculum? Um, equally, I meet with my middle leaders um, individually six times a year, so once a half term, to talk about their curriculum, where it's at, to get a stronger feel for what's going on, to offer, you know, I'm not an expert in every subject, you can't be, but 
part of that's to educate me. Part of that's also so I can offer them advice as well. Um, and it's a very open and transparent um, approach that I have with the middle leaders. It's not about berating them. Um, it's about developing them, but but also myself as well at the, at the same time, because I, you know, I don't want to downplay my senior team. I, I need to hear it from the horse's mouth, you know, middle leader X, what they're doing, as opposed to kind of, I guess, Chinese whisper style through an assistant head, then a vice principal, then it comes to me. Things get lost in translation. And that's not mean, you know, as a criticism at all. Uh, it's just very much, again, the way I'm wired and, and, and have been throughout pretty much all my t- time as a senior leader. Yeah, like this mental model of, of what the kids are learning. And, and so you've, p- you've picked that up by just by engaging with it all the time. Is, is there anything that, because this is what I think is interesting, is there anything there that you think still now like, ah, you know, what, what are the things, that, in, 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 if you have any examples, like what sort of things do you think, ah, I wish we did this and we don't, or, because it's I hard think, to be right, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, no. I would say in terms of um, actual classroom delivery, I still think that oracy is something that we've got to work on as an establishment. And that's across the piece, actually, in terms of the overall level of, of consistency um, and staff regularly shaping pupils' answers. And I don't, and I know Doug Lamob talks about this, but it's something I do believe in that, ki- that people should be giving full articulated answers and really honing in on the key knowledge that you want your pupils to, to know from one lesson to the next. And that's why any talk that I've delivered, I always say that we're really at the, the beginning stages of our curriculum design or creation. You know, whilst we're three years into developing a knowledge-rich curriculum, that's that's a pinprick, really. And it is that lifetime of work. It will go on beyond my time and tenure uh, as principal or beyond my my death, probably, uh, in terms of it being developed. <laughs> that sounds really morbid. <laughs> but, but... <laughs> it's that long. It's that long. But it, but it is though, isn't it? You know, to get yeah. your you, it's one of those things you can never actually reach because it's always something you're striving and striving. There's always going to be something else that we could be doing to make it better. Um, but of course, for every extra thing we could be doing, what do do we potentially need to be getting rid of as well? Going back to that world of simplicity that that I um, kind of live in. Because I know you, I know you joke sometimes, Sam, about the fact that you've got every level of accountability in your school. Because people who are listening might not realise that your school goes right from early years yep. all the way through all the key stages. So you've got every kind of standardised mm. test, every standardised assessment um, that could be going on. Um, and so you've you've got the opportunity to build that curriculum potentially from age four. Yep. But alongside that which you joke about is this accountability thing. So how do you balance that curriculum design with all of those levels of accountability? It's hard. I, I don't mean that as a cop out. It's it's really hard um, because you're right. You, you've got every single layer of account- accountability within the system going all the way through to post 16. And it, it's it's a number of multiple plates that are spinning. And my my first head teacher, um, who really took me under his wing, actually, is in my history department, ultimately, when I became a head of uh, department, talked about this all the time, this idea of plate spinning and running up and down the line and making sure that no one plate crashes, because that one plate is the thing that will probably end up being the nail in, in your coffin uh, as a head. Um, and, I, you know, even to this day, I, I those words echo in my mind all the time hard work really hard work there's a degree also of having absolute faith and trust in your staff it's kind of a quantum leap isn't it really you've got to trust your staff especially if you've given them the framework within which they can do their job properly you've got rid of a lot of the nonsense you've got the culture 
you're never going to get exactly where you want it to be, but on the journey to where you'd like it to be, you've trained your staff in a set way. And that might be through bringing external people in as well. I think you have to have a big degree of faith and trust in the people you work with. because That's part of their development as well. You can't do it all yourself. But it is running that line, going up and down, up and down, just making sure by asking the right questions at the right points, meeting with people at the right moments and having a really clear map out, mapped out year of what you need to do and when. So for sake of argument, predictions for year 11, we we need to be we normally collate those after the mocks. But I want to start to preempt that about two or three months beforehand, thinking about what's the build up to this? What's it going to look like? And when we get those predictions, whether they're, you know, whatever they say and whatever we think about predictions, what are we actually meaningfully doing with that? And for me, it's actually more looking than anything else at the key pupils who aren't performing in the way that we want them to. And what can we do to help support those pupils in that final rundown under ordinary circumstances to their GCSEs as one example? Mm. Well, it's interesting. It's, it's so interesting. I'm so interested in the way you wrestle with some of these dilemmas. Like one, one of the things I think is interesting for me is say the the, the balance of say a primary, uh, you know, core, mm. you know, maths and uh, and literacy, and and then with foundation subjects and the extent to which they're taught as sort of specialist subjects versus <coughs> in, in topics. As that's one area, and then in in the secondary school, it's things like how much time you give to the arts and whether whether you feel like you know if whether you whether you feel that you compromise that um, mm. which which students take the make choices and whether they have enough different choices, and I find that those dilemmas endlessly difficult to resolve because mm. there's no sort of ideal system. So where, where do you feel like your kind of pressure points are on those sorts of choices? I think from a primary perspective. The, the challenge for us, and it's something, again, it's a work in progress, is that interplay between teaching through topic and then teaching specific subjects as discrete entities in their own right. And that's a real debate that um, I've had with my primary phase heads, um, who's, one, again, one of my, my VPs within the school. Um, and it's in many regards, it's that it's kind of that chicken before the egg. We've got to train the staff first to understand how that curriculum design looks before you can then launch that curriculum design. And I think I call it a skill, if that's the right way of, of describing it. But patience, patience is a virtue. And being patient is damn hard because if your mind of where you want to be is, is here and your natural inclination is to go at a million miles an hour but actually that can be the thing that can unravel you and is the wrong way to do things so say so for sake of argument with our primary phase we've talked very carefully this year about training primary staff in a knowledge-rich approach because that's been an element that we've we need to do um, before they then embark on redesigning their curriculum which actually for the, for the context of the school has been pretty strong so far so it's also selling to those staff and this is hard as well we want you to recreate your curriculum potentially so to in many regards fall into line with a secondary but is that the tail wagging the dog and that's a huge debate there to, to be had um with myself and my primary team um and you know I, i'm very open-minded on that front um equally from a secondary perspective you there's multiple, multiple pressures. Um, you've got the pressure, obviously, of accountability. And I know that's kind of out the window at the moment. Um, and we're actually frustrated by that because of the trajectory of the school. Um, but equally, it's, it's that interplay of 
getting the core subjects delivered properly. And that's not meant to at the expense of other subjects. But we've got about a fifth of our cohort when they come up who are not secondary ready. So their levels of numeracy and literacy are nowhere near where they should be. So we've deliberately brought in over the last two and a half years a programme of direct instruction and work with Chloe Sanders um, and St Martin's and the direct instruction hub on this. Um, but that's... Uh, of course, again, there's only so many hours in a school day. Where do you take them out of? And we've had to take, you know, this is my own kind of, um, I sort of shoot myself in the foot here, but I've taken them out of history and geography, which is my own passion, so that they can catch up with their peers comparatively in terms of their reading age, their levels of literacy, their levels of numeracy, because actually, ultimately, as much as I could throw the history curriculum at them, they're not going to cope with it if they can't read, if they can't write, if they can't comprehend. If I think about maths, I remember when I started at the school, I sat in a top um, set year nine group and they were doing basic fractions work, which actually was on a par with what my year threes were doing in the in the primary phase. And pupils couldn't do six times six in a top math set. Now, that's criminal. That that shouldn't be the case. So there's a backfill. And that's, again, that sounds really crude that we've we've got to put into place for those pupils to be able to succeed. And then we've we had the lofty aspiration, which, again, we've had to build over time of building the E back. And that's not because of political pressure to do so or to fulfill the Ofsted framework. I think it's a, it's a gift, um, in all honesty, to pupils to be able to say that you've walked away from school with the E back. But equally, you've got that pressure then of um, the other options and the other subjects within the school. And I don't mean those are second rate subjects because they're not. Every subject has a value. Um, but it's how many subjects do you have your pupils doing? Historically, in my school, pupils were doing anywhere between 13 to 15 GCSEs, but they were underperforming because they were doing far too many. And it was just That's a lot, isn't it? It is. 15 is a lot for anyone. Yeah. We, we've distilled it to nine for most of our cohort. But equally, I also accept that for depending on one cohort to the next, anywhere between 10 to 20 percent of a cohort within the cohort, sorry, the EBAC may not be right for them. And actually, we need to think a bit more creatively. And we try to do that as well. So it's it's really kind of, it sounds really contradictory. Um, and it's not meant to That's be. That's what I like. It spreads your head everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it'd be mad to say that you have some sort of nailed down sort of version. Yeah. It's just hard. But what you're, that was you're thinking it through. Um, it's Emma, what's, what, how does that relate to you, what you're thinking about? With, with... I'm just thinking about knowledge-rich curriculum at primary and the awful T-word <laughs> topic, <laughs> which um, is, is just a personal bugbear of mine, Tom. I can't bear the, I can't bear the topic-based approach. It drives me insane, but that's by the by. But um, I'm just interested, Sam, because obviously at Dustin, it's, it's, you know, it is a knowledge-rich, a knowledge-based curriculum it's how that translates into primary. So how the, how you're promoting that and developing that in the, especially like early years, key stage one, what's that look like? I mean, in terms of early years, we've we've left that to run as it as it was. Um, and our early years provision, um, in the words of Ofsted, is outstanding. Um, is it day in, day out? It's hard to be outstanding day, day in, day out. I don't really know what outstanding actually means, if I'm really, really honest, but I think it's really effective. And I think that the level of delivery is superb. Um, and why change something at this stage, um, you know, that, that isn't broken? Um, you know, it's that kind of saying, isn't it? If it, if it ain't broke, why try and fix it? Um, but within the 
the the curriculum then from year one to year six, we've started to kind of tiptoe really with the primary phase staff to think about what what actually do you want the pupils to know by the end of your lesson. That's been a mind changer for staff because they've had to go away from thinking about well it's just about the activities isn't it it's just about the pace of the lessons because that was something that, that the primary phase has been guilty of to actually thinking more tangibly what is it that you want the those children to come out of lesson x with and again it goes back to what i said in relation to, to tom's answer it's those incremental baby steps of training the staff first then we're going to, and this is what we've yet to do, is to really do, when I say root and branch review of the curriculum, I don't mean that in a Ofsted style quality assurance. It's sitting down with colleagues and talking it through. What is it we want to achieve by the end of a year, by the end of a, a key stage? It's that storybook analogy, isn't it, in terms of what our curriculum tries to tell us? Uh, and that's a level of work and a body of work that we're yet to do with the primary phase. And being really honest, in terms of the all through, I've had to put the, the the biggest part of my focus on the secondary because that was so badly broken and actually ultimately if you not that we do things for Ofsted but was would sink us in an Ofsted sense and as a single academy trust you know we're in a really vulnerable position as a school we're bad Ofsted and it's game over you know we will be soaked up by a map whether we like it or not uh, and we won't, we won't be kind of the masters of our own destiny whether that's to create our own or to source out a map and we don't want to be in that position uh, and equally uh, you know in terms of the pupils in front of us those pupils facing GCSE A-level exams it's actually about their life chances if you strip it back actually to that whole point of why do we do the job we do I think in terms of the level of urgency and this goes to perhaps some of the questions you asked me Tom about where do you sort of strip yourself you've got to put it down that matrix of what's the most urgent and most important in the here and now do I sacrifice 240 year 11 pupils followed by 240 year 10s because I've put all my time and energy and effort I don't mean this in a bad way to early years but I'm going to let 500 and odd pupils you know potentially their GCSEs burn that to me doesn't sit right I'd rather we try and and it's been kind of a squeezing effect of fixing it at one end at the top end of the school thinking about it in the middle with key stage three but then also now trying to think about actually probably the dog now, as opposed to the tail, pushing the school along. Because we've got is, a real... Is that, is that the Halcyon Dream? So we, we haven't talked about your books very much. Oh, gosh. In your most recent book, um, which, which is, you know, the, the Education um, Exposed 2. Yes, yeah. And the, the, the subheading, the first one is in a leading a school in a time of uncertainty, but the new one is is like, what is it? It's chasing the Halcyon Dream. So is that... Is that it? Is, is this the, the moment where you've got this sort of through curriculum and all the kids, it's all like nicely, is that is that what that's referring to? Yeah, well, in terms of the book, it's about allowing teachers to teach. It's about getting rid of all the nonsense that gets in the way of teachers being able to do what they've entered this profession for. And for me, it's trying to think about why do teachers leave the profession within three to five years or in their NQT year? Um, how do we try and prohibit doing that as best we can as, as leaders? Because I do think we have a responsibility and a moral duty to, to try and stop that. I appreciate for some people it's just the wrong profession and that happens. Of course it does. But if there are factors that are within our control that, that would have made a difference, then I think we should. In terms of um, the housing dream of my school, yeah, the housing dream is that we've got this you know, firing on all cylinders, all through curriculum that, you know, helps prepare 
primary phase pupils to enter the secondary phase at the right level um, and to you know, effectively let rip when they join the secondary phase, but also to really enjoy their learning and to know that, I guess from a, a teacher perspective, that you've almost got, this sounds a bit sycophantic, but uber teachers, they're almost like a, a really powerful parent that loves them. No, I'm taking your analogy here, Emma, <laughs> that, that, but also knows a hell of a lot about their subject. And when we talk about what's what makes a really good teacher, again, I don't know what that term good really means because it's an Ofsted kind of sub, you know, subjective term, in my opinion. I think it's that, though. I think it is this this. You know, even take away the, the phrase Uber teacher, it's some it's a teacher that will do will walk, you know, over hot coals for the pupils in front of them. And it, I do find it worrying when people say the children are lucky to have me. It's the other way around. You're lucky to have the children and you should be serving them to the best of your ability. Yeah. Nice analogy there, Strickland. Nice analogy. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll quote you there, to be fair to you. But I think it's, it's it's a workload thing as well. I mean, you have, you have to make the job manageable, and so you're you're you're, you're talking about it from the from both ends, aren't you? I mean, it's not like you're. It comes through in the book. You've got to make the job so it's attractive and doable. And we're not sort of there is that service aspect which makes teaching attractive. But at the same time, it's got to be, you know, something you can just do as a job as well because it's just normal because that's normal. I I just want to say because we so many things I can. Do, we can ask you, but I, I'm just going to just reference a couple of things. I'm really pleased to see in, in your reference. So you talk about, um, say, on one side, and these aren't opposites, but you've got Dan Williams' um, ideas, why don't students like school? You talk about Shimamura's Marge model, which I'm a big fan of. But also you talk about Ron Berger's ethic of excellence, because there's there's because there's a whole kind of um, culture there about um, kids getting self-esteem through accomplishments and having lots of scaffolding and support yeah. to achieve that. So I feel like these sorts of ideas are are, are really strong. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of all of those things. So I was really heartened to see that. So is that something you share with the staff? Was your average uh, Dustin's teacher know all about those things? Or are, are you in the process of, of, of rolling those things through? Your no, work? no. Um, so we've, we've shared that with staff. And again, going back to one of the, the previous questions about how close are you to the curriculum, I've, I deliberately, um, after about six months of, of setting the culture and the behaviour training around the culture that I, um, myself, I, and then I let my senior team kind of drive that, that freed me up to then think about the curriculum with staff. And it was training it at varying levels, at a middle leader level, and then at senior leadership level within our senior leadership meetings, but also at a staffing-based level as well. And deliberately tiering it as we've gone through the last nearly four years, really, of curriculum theory. And if I think back to the last lockdown, um, we I deliberately recorded, as did a number of my, my senior leaders, teacher development seminars, TDS, a bit corny. Um, but they were all around curriculum theory, and they're kind of 45-minute, you know, talking workshops that pre-recorded, sent out via Teams with the, the PowerPoint, if it was there was a PowerPoint attached to it, with all the hyperlinks to all of the um, references, the reference points, the books, that if they're available on the internet, of course, um, and blogs that, were, that are out there that we've referenced and talked about within those sessions. So staff could go and look in further detail if they wanted to at, you know, Berger or um, William or, or whoever. So we have I love that commitment to it. It's, uh, it's 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 music to my ears. <laughs> I can't I can't not ask Sam though, Tom, about behaviour because 
we've not touched on this yet, and I'm just watching the clock tick by, and I've got I've got to hear him say his kind of catchphrase really about behaviour. <laughs> so what's the catchphrase? Sam? <laughs> well, I, I describe behaviour as kryptonite. Uh, I think I do that multiple times, and I talk about permitting what you promote, which is a lamov, but promoting what you permit. So I sort of adapted his phrase a little bit. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I do see behaviour as being kryptonite if if it's not where you want it to be. And it's a, a really convenient clothes peg to hang all of your um, angst, worries, concerns on um, as a class-based teacher as to why you can't do X, Y or Z. If, they, if the pupils aren't behaving for you, then there's no point me uh, as talking about curriculum, talking about progression models, talking about subject knowledge, when my staff will turn around and say, but the the children don't behave, Sam, so it doesn't really matter, does it? And they're totally right. If that's the narrative that they're going to put back to me because the behaviour isn't where it should be, then absolutely, you know, I'm on a hiding to nothing and I'm banged to rights, really. So for me, I think my view is you've got to get the, the culture right first. And that was, again, when I joined the school very deliberately, year one was solely about the culture, the climate and the ethos of the school. Well, I, I think that's fantastic. In fact, one of the things that it winds me up almost more than anything is when you have people banging on about behavior for example uh you know admonishing schools for you know exclusion rates or certain behavior policies and i just think hang on a minute do you run a school oh no okay <laughs> so f- shut up and listen to people who do and you're one of the people who people should listen to <laughs> you have to do it you know and I, and I just think listen to someone like sam strickland because he runs a school really well and he has to make these tough choices and and therefore you carry this enormous credibility which i just think is amazing i actually think we need to stop talking now because we've gone on for a long time and it's just honestly i want to say this now to sort of wrap up i just think you're massively inspirational and um because you do walk the talk you do run a a great school and you but you don't sort of sugarcoat it you don't big yourself up you just get on with it talk about the realities of it share great ideas and the staff who, who work with you love it there and they always say so so you're, you're doing a great job so thank you so much for sharing thank you that's really kind thank you no but it's well deserved and it's just so great to hear you talk uh, about about your work and um thank you for sharing your ideas and your books as well so thank you for having me uh, no it's a real it's a real pleasure so thank you very much emma do you want to do you want to wrap us up no, I was just going to say thanks again, Sam. It's brilliant to hear not just the voice of secondary, but the voice of all through, which is absolutely brilliant. It's it's so refreshing to have somebody with so much leadership kind of lived experience in multiple phases. And I think that's another reason that makes you a real kind of voice to be listened to and respected because you have got that kind of umbrella overview of the entire sector. So an absolute joy to have you on. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening again. We've had Sam Strickland on, and um, we'll be having more guests coming up soon. Uh, But thanks for joining us on Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me and Emma. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.